Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris, and with me as usual are Dr. Joe Boot and Nathan O'Black. Good to be with you guys again. Our subject for today, over this, uh, over this Christmas break, is the Great Reset. So this is, depending on who you're talking to, this is some, some dangerous territory, some dicey kind of situation, but uh, that seems to be sort of where we live lately. And... I think uh, there need there's there's a need for a lot of clarity over this question, and so Joe, why don't we why don't we start there when we're talking about the Great Reset? Maybe just kick us off by telling us what is it, where does it come from, what's involved with it? Yeah, so uh, the the term appears to be have emerged somewhere in the spring. Uh, summer um, of this year of this year and um, it, the 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 origin is the is the world economic forum um, and uh, Klaus Schwab um, I've got his book right here in front of me actually it's called COVID-19 the great reset uh, Thierry Malaret is the co-author um, and it's published by Forum Publishing. It came out in June, remarkably timed. Um, and Schwab it, is the is he the head of the uh, the World Economic yeah, Forum? Yeah, the founder and head of the World Economic Forum. Um, he sort of you know looks a little bit like Doctor No. I haven't seen him with a cat yet, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's got that sort of villainous cranium um, that. Uh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> one can see stoking um all kinds of conspiratorial ideas like he's running some sort of a uh, criminal enterprise organization there but um uh, apart from the man's appearance now he's the founder and executive chairman of the world economic forum and uh, he's written a whole number of books the fourth industrial revolution was one of them um and then this uh this book came out in june so that appears to be the origin of it some of the political slogans we've been hearing uh, this year things like build back better mm-hmm. um and so forth appear to have emerged from this great reset uh, uh, discussion. Um, the uh, um, Time magazine has mm-hmm. done a, a complete edition, actually, on the Great Reset. Mm-hmm. Uh, just over the, uh, the the summer, I think it was. I don't know what month that one came out, actually, Nathan. Mm-hmm. Um, and our own Prime Minister here, you know, Justin Trudeau, has been heard speaking about the Great Reset. So. Of course, uh, sometimes the, uh, uh, the sometimes when this issue comes up, we're hearing the notion that this is a conspiracy theory, that there's nothing to this. This whole Great Reset thing is nothing more than uh, conspiratorial internet talk. But I, but I am actually holding the book in my hand uh, right now as we speak. Published by a major publisher Published on by, a big-time website. That's mm-hmm. right. Uh, the World Economic Forum uh the website is there for everybody to take a look at the um, their annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. It's a sort of gathering of corporate billionaires and uh, uh, the uh, political elites and and um, corporate elites gathering together to think through and plan what the world should really look like in their view. Um, and uh, well, frankly, how the rest of us who can't afford to fly in on our private jet um, ought to live. So. Um, maybe you can sense that I'm slightly skeptical of the Great Reset so far, <laughs> but uh, it's not a conspiracy theory. In fact, I think we've got a clip that you're going to play for us, Ryan, where our, where the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, had something quite important to say about the Great Reset. That's right. Yeah, this is Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. The so-called Great Reset is not a conspiracy theory. It is a actual set of, propo- of concrete proposals 
being advocated by some very influential people, and including, apparently, by Prime Minister Trudeau, who clearly alluded to it, referred to it, quoted from it, the Schwab theory, uh, in a speech he gave to the United Nations a couple of months ago. So it's not a conspiracy theory to talk about that. Those are the folks advocating it. And I think it's perfectly legitimate for democratically elected leaders for me to say, heck no, we're not going to exploit or take the uh, take advantage of a crisis to uh, advance a political agenda. If, if we're actually all in this together, like we keep saying, then how about we focus on the crisis, on protecting lives and livelihoods, helping people get through this, uh, and and how about after that, instead of exploiting the crisis to impose on democratic societies, a whole bunch of social, failed socialist policy ideas. How about instead we get refocused on generating economic growth, on, on recreating some of the trillions of dollars of wealth that will have been destroyed, of restarting some of the hundreds of thousands of businesses that will have gone under, of obsessively focusing on getting the millions uh, 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 the tens of millions around the world back to work. Those who have suffered most in the COVID era have been the poorest around the world. And so the notion that we would then drive them further into energy poverty through uh, Klaus Schwab's policy uh, agenda is, I, I just fr frankly find it offensive. So no, it's not a conspiracy and nor is it a conspiracy theory. I think it's just uh, very um, distasteful and regrettable that influential people would explicitly seek to take advantage of a crisis like this to advance their own political uh, vision and values. Uh, Joe, just before you respond, there's a quote by Austrian economist and philosopher Friedrich von Hayek that I'd like to share. He once wrote that emergencies have always been the pretext on which the safeguards of individual liberty have eroded. And that's exactly what he's talking about here, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's a great quote. Um, that's precisely what um, uh, Kenny is uh, concerned with, I think. And um, I was personally encouraged to hear a, a Canadian politician um, actually say something about this mm. and, and uh, condemn this abstract um, utopianism, of course, maybe what Kenny doesn't understand, and I think we'll come on to this shortly in our discussion, is the religious character of utopianism that makes it this perennial and constant gnawing problem. Mm. Uh, but uh, what we haven't said so far is that Klaus Schwab, um, uh, as, uh, as well as having this villainous cranium, is um, a transhumanist. And uh, his his book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, is really saying that there's been three industrial revolutions already, hence a fourth. And the fourth one is about um, artificial intelligence, massive leaps in uh, biotechnology. Mm. And for those of our listeners who know anything about transhumanism or posthumanism, it's the idea that human beings become so interdependent with mm and indeed integrated with their own technology, they actually transcend what we currently understand to be human existence. Mm. It's like something out of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, it's like mm -hmm. the, exactly out of mm -hmm. his uh, Space Trilogy, mm -hmm. which is a good recommend for Christmas reading for anybody who uh, uh, is interested in that. Um, it's a, I remember reading that series actually back when I was uh, when I was a teenager. It was mm -hmm. uh, uh, eye opening, fantastic. But uh, there is a there is a a, um, a a philosophical and religious undertow to this. This isn't just a grab bag of uh, leftist policies, which some of these proposals sound like. Um, but he's also right to say that what's happened is that, uh, I mean, the book itself is called COVID-19, The Great Reset, is the argument is, is that disease uh, can be, um, you know, a, a, an epidemic, a pandemic has had significant historical implications in the past. And that this is a, an opportunity, a moment for us to to seize uh, the this um, uh, 
tragedy, this crisis situation to reset, to press the reset button, if you will, of economies and of society. Um, he actually says in his book, the Black Death may have been the unrecognized beginning of modern man, uh, end quote. So he's actually trying to say that almost, you know, disease is the defining characteristic of the development of human society. Um, just as sort of some would point like Marx to, you know, economic factors, uh, Schwab is almost arguing, it seems to me in parts of this book, that uh, disease is really that defining factor in history. And we've got this opportunity to, to, to transform reality. Lots of um, uh, abstractions used, complexity, velocity, uh, trying to make uh, some very old fashioned utopian and Marxist ideas sound like they're something new. Um, but they really aren't. They're just repackaged for a technological era. And um, a few, just a few quotes that would give you a sense, Ryan, you asked, you know, what, what exactly is it? Um, well, uh, he argues, uh, page 11, that it's a time for reinvention. So this is a moment for, for the reinvention of society, the reinvention of economies. Um, uh, he says, and I quote, it's the search for, now's the time for effectively for, quote, a search for the common good as a policy objective, the notion of fairness acquiring political potency, radical welfare and taxation measures, and drastic geopolitical uh, realignments. The broader point is this, the possibilities for change and the resulting new order are now unlimited and only bound by our imagination, end quote. So you've got this, essentially this, this group of intellectuals. This is exactly what Thomas Sowell warns against in his book, Intellectuals, exactly what uh, Paul Johnson in his book sounded the alarm about in his historical study of a variety of different intellectuals in the 20th century. Uh, is these abstract ideas uh, of of intellectuals of elites then being imposed on the world as though man's imagination can remake uh, reality, and and that's pretty much the essence of it. Um, on page forty four of the Great Reset, um, just by way of introduction to this discussion, he says governments must do whatever it takes and spend whatever it costs in the interests of our health and our collective wealth for the economy to recover sustainably. And of course, if you know about climate ideology and the, the language of sustainability uh, tends to have connotations for zero economic growth. Um, as both an economist and public health specialist put it, uh, he says, only saving lives will save livelihoods. So it's a lot of pro-lockdown advocacy. Um, it's supportive of all the measures because of course this will drive the, the necessary reset of um, economic life. So uh, it's sort of placing hope in uh, driving up the, the fear factor, the, 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 the sort of unprecedented ca uh, character of the economic upheaval of this period to say this is the moment now uh, that we can seize on to bring about the realization of our of our dreams of the ideal society. I mean, that's essentially what it's about. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> there were there were a lot of big words that you quoted from uh, Schwab there. And one of the things that uh, that comes to mind, and I'm uh, I'll be sort of paraphrasing from memory, but G.K. Chesterton says mm. that you've got to, or you can you can use big words to justify and hedge and shoehorn your way into just about anything. It's when you use small words that you have to actually be clear and understand what you mean. You right. have to have something in view when you say, I wish Joe to go to jail. That's his line. But, yeah. uh, the, and one of the, it, just, it just brings up one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest apprehensions that I have as I read a little bit about this, is that all of these big words and all of these terms like equitable, sustainable, mm. better, fair, strong, they go undefined. Yes. And we're, uh, we seem to be being urged towards we know not what. Um, can you say a little bit more about 
utopianism about what we would actually be letting ourselves in for with a with a great reset along the lines that uh, that are being laid out or advocated here yeah well one of the things that struck me about the the book itself when i first started reading it was how uh interminably dull and boring (laughs) it is um uh it is not a page turner let me put it to you that way um in a certain sense you can see it's written by a sort of bureaucrat um and um part of it is that you get buried in in all of those euphemisms that you've just talked about uh which do go largely unexplained um and it's not until you actually get to the sort of more concrete fleshed out uh uh, proposals, policy proposals that you actually start to see what these mean. And even then, these proposals are um, masked in a different kind of language. Now, of course, you know, we've talked before uh, on the podcast about cultural Marxism um, and how it was understood by the intellectuals in the 20th century that you, you simply couldn't take the Marxism of uh, Stalin, Lenin, um, and uh, simply dump that in Western culture and expect people to accept it. You had to change, you had to give words, invest words with a new meaning. Um, you know, you, if uh, when you think about your own family budget, would think that it'd be actually quite important that you have, uh, that your budget is sustainable. But for you, that probably means that you don't overspend, uh, that you're that uh, you live within your means and so on. But um, sustainability in this nomenclature means something altogether different. In fact, it may well mean massive borrowing and huge debt leveraging. Um, fairness. Most Christians will say, "Well, that's a good word. What's wrong with fairness? What's wrong with justice? What's wrong with you know social conscience?" Uh, we've talked about social justice before, um, but these words have to be defined. What do we mean then by fairness? And what becomes clear uh, in this book and in this whole in, in Time magazine and in this whole program that uh, these intellectuals are advocating is that fairness means the destruction of the free market. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is some form of iniquitous, um, you know, arrangement, um, uh, and it means a massive redistribution of 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 wealth. So let me give you a couple of. Uh, I mean, you did ask for it. Um, a couple of uh, a couple of these scintillating quotes from um, <laughs> from I'm, the Great Reset. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in terms of what we can expect, so he says. And I'm quoting now, it's this is page 78, the post-pandemic era, so first and foremost, the post-pandemic era will usher in a period of massive wealth redistribution mm. from the rich to the poor and from capital to labor. Of course, we've heard wow. those promises before, haven't we? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, those sound very uh, Marxist in their orientation, of course. Second, COVID-19 is likely to sound the death knell of neoliberalism. I found this particularly interesting. A co- uh, and I'm quoting, a corpus of ideas and policies that can loosely be defined as favoring competition over solidarity. So there he's talking about the free market competition. Uh, creative destruction, he says, over government intervention and economic growth over social welfare. For, for a number of years, the neoliberal doctrine has been on the wane with many commentators, business leaders, and policymakers increasingly denouncing its market fetishism. But COVID-19 brought about a coup de grace. These two concomitant forces, massive redistribution on the one hand and abandoning neoliberal policies on the other, which he says have been most entrenched, by the way, in the United States and in the United Kingdom. Um, in other words, the... The, the, the leaders of Anglo-Saxon liberty and free markets. Um, so massive redistribution on the one hand, abandoning neoliberal policies on the other, will exert a defining impact on our society's organization, ranging from how inequalities could spur social unrest to the increasing role of governments and the redefinition of social contracts, end quote. And he's very open about the fact that this means massive government, Massive government intervention, a new acceptance of, because that neoliberalism, he's now uh, talking about the way classical liberalism um, 
sort of morphed into a kind of neoliberalism, a sort of watered down liberalism. We would call that sort of the remnants of freedom um, in the West. Um, but I want to just give you just a couple more um, to, to, to wrap this up. Um, in, in terms of what this actually means, what do those big words and those euphemisms mean in concrete terms? So here's some more, page 94. Some countries will nationalize. What a shock. Uh, in general, there will be more regulation covering many different issues, such as workers' safety or domestic sourcing for certain goods. Businesses will be held to account on social and environmental factors. So that you're talking there about the ethic, the control of businesses in terms of what they believe about social issues and what they believe about environmental issues. So there's a kind of uh, uh, a new ethics based around the new religion. Um, mediated by the state for which they'll be expected to be part of the solution so not only will they be expected to recognize it he says but they will be expected to put their capital to work to be part uh, and their practices to conform to the state's religious idea of the future to varying degrees business executives in all industries and in all countries will have to adapt to greater government intervention Research and development for global public goods such as health and climate change solutions will be actively pursued. Taxation will increase, particularly for the most privileged, because governments will need to strengthen their resilience capabilities and wish to invest more heavily in them. As advocated by Joseph Stiglitz, he says, quote, the first priority is to provide more funding for the public sector. Really, is that even possible? <laughs> more than what we're doing, especially for those parts the parts of it that are designed to protect against the multitude of risks, that's a very interesting expression, that a complex society faces. So you're being protected from risks by massive public spending and state control and to fund the advances in science and higher quality education on which our future prosperity depends. These are areas in which productive jobs, researchers, teachers, and those who help run the institutions that support them can be created quickly. Even as we emerge from this crisis, we should be aware that some of the crisis surely lurks around the corner. We can't predict what the next one will look like other than it will look different from the last. In other words, expect there to be more crises for the government to step in to handle and manage uh, for us. Um, and when he reduces this, to the, it, he says, finally, that uh, there will be a renegotiation of the social contract. And of course, we've heard that language since 1789, uh, the French Revolution, Voltaire's social contract. Uh, and of course... Rousseau, what did I say? Voltaire. Voltaire. Sorry, not Voltaire. I meant Rousseau. Two bad guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two, mm -hmm. <laughs> two pretty wicked guys, but mm -hmm. I meant Rousseau. Rousseau's, uh, in, in, in some respects, the first truly modern intellectual. Uh, and his, his ushering in what we might call an era of revolutions. And Schwab sees the continuation of that in what he's saying. He, he fundamentally believes it's this is we're coming to a sort of apex of this era of revolutions. So it will require a renegotiation of the social contact. What will that look like? Well, he says two things stand out in particular. One, a broader, if not universal, provision of social assistance, social insurance, health care, and basic quality services, whatever that means. Um, and then secondly, a moving towards enhanced protection, so the managing of risks for workers and for those currently most vulnerable. Uh, so it's, it's fundamentally a, uh, a reimagining uh, in a technological era of um, uh, a, a sort of revolutionary utopian movement with where has many of the same themes running through it but ultimately it's about the radical egalitarian democratization of society uh to the point where um the vast majority of things are simply funded through this magical public purse mm -hmm. and all controlled maintained and managed by the state and it's my turn to quote chesterton yeah. Once you abolish God, the government becomes God. Yeah. And I, that's exactly what's happening uh, as we read through that book. Um, and something that I'm thinking of right now is that, you know, with everything we've talked about, with Justin Trudeau and many other world leaders speaking directly about the Great Reset, uh, books being written, websites developed. And if you go onto the World Economic Forum website, you can click on their list of partners and you'll notice every major corporation from around the world listed as a partner 
signed up for this reimagination, but Apple, Google, Walmart, Facebook, they're all on there. So with all of this very explicitly out there for us to look into, why, why when we bring this up in conversation, are you still immediately labeled as a conspiracy theorist? Um, dialogue is shut down right away. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to deal with it, or most people anyways. How do we bring this issue up in conversation? Is there a right way to do it? Is there a wrong way? How should we be going about this? Yeah, uh, I think fundamentally, certainly from the Christian standpoint, and I did write a bit about this in Mission of God, um, we have to recognize the religious imperative uh, that's at work in all of this utopian thinking. We're not we're not um, conspiracy theorists. Like we're not look we're not tin hat wearing, tin foil. Uh, uh, wrapped around our heads, whatever it is, um, seeing a, a conspiracy around every corner. But when stuff is published in books, journals, magazines, websites, and people are openly pursuing it, and big tech and big corporations are openly openly pursuing it, um, it would be foolish not to recognize what I think we've called before on our podcast a convergent opportunism. Uh, what you're talking about really is a shared religious world and life view. It's not that we think that there's two or three individuals. Um, now, of course, there are conspiracies. There have always been conspiracies in history, plural. But it's not like there are two or three individuals, uh, you know, which is why I gave the sort of Dr. No joke earlier on, sort of running this uh, um, uh, highly secretive crime syndicate from, um, from an orbiter in space, um, controlling everything that's going on on the Earth. But the reason that some people fall into that is because they do observe this kind of bizarre... Opp convergent opportunism, uh, opportunism, and they think, well, how is that possible unless there be some sort of guiding hand behind it? And the reality is, Psalm 2 makes very clear that there is a spiritual conspiracy against the Lord and his anointed. It's been going on since uh, Genesis chapter 3. Um, we see it break out emphatically in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. We maybe come back to that to, toward the end. Um, and when you look at the great empire building projects of ancient Babylon, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, prior to the, uh, the transformative power of the gospel uh, through the incarnation and, and, of course, the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus, um, these imperial powers uh, were very much dreaming of building this one unified order. And it was a religious order. It was a politico-religious order. Um, it was a joining of religion and state. And as we've de-Christianized steadily in the West since the French Revolution, it should not be a surprise to us that the that we saw the rise of these um, utopian thinkers. I mean, you go back to Plato and Aristotle, you've got... Uh, it wasn't called utopianism there, of course. I mean, it was probably Thomas More who coined the term um, utopia, wrote a book called Utopia. It literally means no place. But you can see these sort of schemes for utopian societies in Plato and Aristotle. And as we've de-Christianized men like Rousseau and Marx, uh, re really just picked up these old pagan themes and redeployed them. And Nathan, what you've done there is just picked up on the fact that with the added situation that we have in our culture now of big corporations and big tech, which are frankly have been able to come what they are because of their involvement with big government. Uh, and, you know, we've gosh, we've seen plenty of that and the censorship and everything else, even in the last six months and the interference in political life and so on by some of these big companies. That's kind of a new factor. It's almost like a, um, something that Marx could never have dreamed of. Uh, and, and, and a Rousseau, you know, would have struggled to have even imagined that kind of capacity to influence and shape people's thinking. I mean, some of the dystopian uh, writers, Orwell, um, for example, and was it Wells? Um, who, you know, saw some of the potentiality in these kinds of ideas. But then you've got these, um, you know, evolutionary uh, religious dreamers like Teilhard de Chardin and others who kind of looked, also looked ahead to this utopian future. And it was the dominant perspective in amongst 20th century intellectuals. Uh, Bertrand Russell being uh, just one example. They 
almost all of them really believed in some kind of world government, that this was the key to the future, um, that there needs to be global cooperation. You hear all about cooperation in, in uh, Schwab's book and uh, uh, global governance and uh, the failure of global governance in this situation. So the conspiracy theorist is is um is is we might say a third right there is a spiritual conspiracy there aren't that they're wrong in thinking that there are a few puppeteers controlling the whole thing um but they the, the, when people observe a kind of bizarre convergent opportunism they're not wrong um you mentioned all those big tech companies all being signed up at Davos and and uh, on board with much of this agenda. I mean, that's real. That's that's not a conspiracy. I mean, Jason Kenny right there, he's acknowledging it. Um, so what we mustn't do is fall into the trap of despair and thinking that a few uh, ideologues and elites, even if they've got billions and have large corporations, are at the wheel of history. They are not. God is at the wheel of history. Um but I think the in conversation, the way we can get into this with people is to help uh, help them to see that if you don't have the kingdom of God, if you don't have the predestinating, if if God, if in Jesus Christ is not the creator, the sustainer, the governor of all things, if he's not a predestinating God, if he isn't working out his plan of redemption and establishing his kingdom, then we are in fact living in a world that is fundamentally threatening to crush us. It's a world of chaos. It's a world of flux. Man must impose his word, his predestinating word on it. Uh, he must uh, offer an alternative eschatology, and that's all Marxism is. It's kind of a secularized, uh, atheistic eschatology that's tried to borrow elements of, 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 of the Christian idea of the kingdom of God and secularize it. Uh, and I think we can help people recognize it, Nathan, and see it by showing that really in a certain sense, this the reason this is such a constant problem historically is that it is a sort of logical religious necessity if you don't believe in Christ. If you don't believe in the triune God of scripture and you don't have Christ establishing his kingdom to redeem humankind from the fall and to bring about a new uh, creation, uh, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Man must imminentize that transcendent reality. So instead of the power and source of that being from above and beyond history, where Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not from or of this world, that's its power, its authority is not derived from man and his politics. If you don't have the transcendent Christ bringing about his kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit, man must imminentize the reality of his kingdom. He must imminentize judgment. He must make history the realm of total and final judgment. And he must establish his kingdom now. And crisis, moments of crisis, are the time to do it because people are destabilized. They're in the grip of fear. Um, and those are the moments when people are most vulnerable and uh, can be most easily manipulated. So instead of it being by regeneration and renewal of the heart that we're that, that Christ transforms our hearts to love of God and love of neighbor, you must be coerced to love all men in terms of the principle of love that the utopian ideologues imagine, uh, which for them is the absolute oneness of a humanity that's undivided, totally uh, unified, becoming a certain, to a certain extent a kind of collective consciousness uh, because man's freedom, uh, man's uh, independence, his, his being an image bearer of God is a constant threat to that unified order because what if Ryan decides he wants to do something else? What if he has a different idea about the direction for his family? Well, that now becomes a threat. What if the church preaches the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. Well, now you've got a direct threat to the unity, the, uh, this ideological concept of the unity, the monistic unity of human society and its collective egalitarian reality. And so um, those things must be crushed. Those things must be stamped out to realize man's total freedom, total self-consciousness. It's a kind of paradox there. You must become a slave to be free. Rousseau was aware of that. Uh, that bizarre 
paradox. Man must be forced to be free. And that's always the problem with these utopias. They are dystopian because they are fundamentally coercive because they always rely on the power state, stateology, uh, olatry, I should say, worship of state to realize their, um, their dream. But in communicating this, I think it's helpful to show the religious root and let people say, see the contrast. I mean, Augustine was aware of it. It's the city of man. It's the city of God. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of religious, logical necessity for the one who doesn't believe in Christ and his kingdom. We're really uh, getting long on time here for this episode. Joe, you've, uh, you've had a lot to say on the, uh, the problems and the ultimate uh, futility of these utopian dreams, starting with the Tower of Babel through the French Revolution and down to this morning. Uh, maybe you can close by hitting us with some good news, hitting us with what's, uh, you know, what's the Christian to be mindful of? This is Worldview Wednesday. What's the, what's the Christian worldview uh, response to what we're facing in, in the Great Reset? Um, so in order to set my answer up, if, I've, if I can uh, borrow just a tiny bit more time here, and being as it's Christmas, I think you can let me have that. Um, uh, to, um, there's a brilliant book that I would recommend our, our readers, uh, if they're interested in this should get and read it's by uh, Thomas Molnar. It's called utopia, the perennial heresy. It's an absolutely brilliant book. Um, and, uh, in it, um, uh, Molnar really gets to the sort of religious core, the religious root of what's happening with these, um, ideologies and he does actually eventually contrast it with the christian idea uh, of the kingdom of god he kind of shows that he, un he unpacks that um but let me just um one of the things that baffles us i think baffles people is how could we how could these ideas get so much currency so quickly um, and be taken so seriously. And it's because it's been a long process of st uh, state really, in our society now for some time. Um, and Molnar says this, he says, although the anarchistic element remains at the core of utopianism, nonetheless, the revolutionary and or welfare state and its institutions are glorified. This is in utopia. The reason is this, the political formations which emerged from the revolutions of the past several decades are not considered political but says the utopian transitional to a new associative organization of mankind. This amounts to a complete reevaluation of the idea of the state. The 19th century liberals distrusted its accumulation of power and sought to secure for the individual citizen every sort of safeguard against state encroachments on its rights. Today, under the utopian impact, those who still call themselves liberals would grant colossal powers to the state and even to a super state with authority over the entire planet. What has happened in the meantime is that there has been apparent headway toward the utopian ideal of the association of equal citizens living in a classless and stateless society. The state no longer fr appears frightening because in the welfare state of the West, power seems distributed ever more evenly. From a feared and distrusted Leviathan, the state has suddenly become a performer of miracles, a distributor of benefits, an equalizer of the human condition. According to the crude arithmetic of the collectivist, the amount of satisfaction given to the poor through welfare legislation exceeds the amount of discontent of the rich for whom the corresponding sum is taken away. Contemporary state oratory, then, is the expression of utopian man's confidence that the world is converging towards larger units of total beneficial power. Thus, our integration with the state and society and the world community does not appear as frightening as a frightening process, but first a natural and secondly a desirable one. <laughs> and, um, uh, it makes, he says in uh, a little further on, he says it, it makes utopian sense to make religionless man the first objective because such a man is more, to, sorry, it makes utopian sense to make 
religionless man the first objective because such a man is more easily manipulated religion must be extirpated not only because the churches are considered inimical inimical but also because any kind of spiritual authority outside the party contradicts the fundamental monism of utopians so um he, 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 uh, finally, he says, at Utopia's roots, there is defiance of God, pride unlimited, a yearning for enormous power, and the assumption of divine attributes with a view to manipulating and shaping mankind's fate. That's Molnar. Uh, I, I, I've not read, uh, I don't think I've read a more incisive summary of this kind of religious utopian imperative and the reason that that's important especially that last quote uh a religionless man that is a man who doesn't believe in by that he means the man the western man devoid of his christianity is is easily manipulated and at the root of all of this is pride right it's it it's man's sin his 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 pride his desire to control and to manipulate and to dominate um, and in terms of the kingdom of God, um, uh, Christ tells us that our calling is not domination, but service, uh, not manipulation, but ministry. And that's the difference. You remember when the disciples were arguing about uh, who was the greatest and Christ comes in the midst of them and says, look, he who wants to be great among you must be your servant. Uh, and, Christ himself takes the towel and he, of course, he washes the disciples' feet when he's modeling for them what true um, influence and service in the kingdom of God really looks like. And that's why in the Western political tradition, we speak about prime ministers and civil servants because the idea is you hold an office as a, as a ministry under God to serve others. Um but this is, in the end, about pride. The, the alternative is about pride and power. Um, the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Schwab's kingdom and the kingdom of the Great Reset uh, and of these utopians down the centuries is fundamentally about manipulation and control to reach their desired end. It's not regeneration, and it's about coercion, not uh, regeneration and redemption and renewal. I think we can take comfort in the fact that as we look at uh, um, the great example of this in scripture, of, of this sort of Babel building, the Tower of Babel, uh, it's interesting that uh, the scripture says there that as God looks at this, he says that uh, with this, this sort of political and religious unity they were pursuing, he says nothing will be beyond them. Uh, they're, you know, in the coming together in a, in a, in a single language, um, in the uh, sort of religious and social unity that they were pursuing and the tower that they were building, which is a kind of a religious symbol, um, that uh, the, the, the wickedness, the awfulness of the things that they would pursue, nothing would be beyond them. And when you hear about a fourth industrial revolution and transhumanism and so forth, you're looking at a modern Tower of Babel. You're looking at uh, technological, bio, uh, biological dreams of remaking humanity. But we know what happened at Babel, and that is God introduced radical confusion because he was not going to allow the world to descend into the condition it, it descended into before the flood. And he dispersed these uh, globalist dreams, if you will. And I think that's what we're heading for. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the kingdom of God ultimately did. The preaching of the gospel fundamentally is inimical as Hamonar said, uh, to this utopian dream, because the kingdom of God declares the antithesis in history. Christ says, if you're not for me, you're against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And it's going to divide even households. And that is why the kingdom of God, which says there is a fundamental antithesis to every institution, because it's through every heart mm -hmm. on the planet in terms of our religious orientation for or against Christ and his kingdom. And that means the God, the kingdom of God, ironically, because we're sometimes accused of being utopian uh, because we have a, a, an optimistic view of the kingdom of God. We mm. speak of the increase of his government and peace. We talk about uh, let justice roll down. Mm -hmm. 
like water. Uh, we speak about the river of God coming out from under the temple. We speak about the rock that shatters the Babel towers and uh, uh, introduces the empire of Christ. We talk about of the increase of his government and peace, of Christ putting his feet on the neck of all his enemies in history. And sometimes people look at that and they say, well, you utopians. No, the kingdom of God is the polar opposite mm of the no place of human utopias mm -hmm. that seek by man's own ingenuity, power, manipulation to establish effectively man's dystopia. Mm. Uh, you know, a boot stamping on a human face forever, that the exercise of power and manipulation um, for its own sake. And so there couldn't be a greater contrast between the kingdom of God and, and, and man's, the city of man. And this is what Christ in history is shattering. I mean, that's the message, isn't it, of Hebrews. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that only that which cannot be shaken will remain. There is going to be no great reset of of the kingdom of God. You know, in this book, they're even talking about, um, uh, you know, b before, uh, um, before COVID, B.C., <laughs> and, and, oh. Yeah, and, and 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 after COVID, uh, as though this is going to be some sort of you know, but that's what exactly what they did in the French Revolution. They said, "Let's yeah. start history mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. Let's begin the calendar over again." Mm -hmm. That didn't go well. That didn't go too well, mm -hmm. did it? Let's reframe the working week. This mm -hmm. has all been tried. This mm -hmm. is just a new uh, imagining of it. And God, in His in due time, the scripture says, their foot shall slide in due time and he will breathe on it in his good time. Let me let me close, Ryan, if you will permit me. I guess because I'm speaking into the mic right now, you haven't got a massive amount of choice in that unless you edit this part out, which does give you tremendous power. Ryan um, sounds very coercive right it's, now. It's all, uh, it's all in my hands. Uh, I, I, I last, uh, actually may have been a bit before this, but I was just looking at, through my books today i do that periodically say what have i not revisited recently and i was looking at a book by chantelle de salle a french philosopher she wrote a book called the unlearned lessons of the 20th century it's essays on an essay on late modernity and uh, i just want to uh, just cite a couple of interesting things that she says she says the force of human catastrophes compels us to meditate upon the obscure weight that sinks utopias so she says catastrophes actually sink utopias. Schwab wants to say, no, this is the birth of one. But she says they sink them. A truth about man, this is what she says, a truth about man that limits the omnipotence of the will in the drive toward perfection. We cannot reshape humanity according to our will. The horror that grips us as we look back upon the spectacle of the 20th century shows us that a mysterious order has been subverted. She doesn't really know the Lord, but she recognizes a, 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 what she's recognizing there is creational order being subverted. And, and, and look, things like this great reset, I mean, Kenny just talked about in that clip we played, you know, economic devastation. We don't know what kind of evils. Look at the 20th century. What evil could lurk for the 21st century in these utopian wicked schemes? But she, but she says, we cannot reshape humanity according to our will. The category, and I'm quoting, of what is possible imposes itself upon us. And our recognition of this fact is the prerequisite for any reconstruction. So, she says that effectively what she's recognizing is that creation imposes on us uh, the nature of the possible. I quoted from the Great Reset there at the beginning that only, he says, our imagination limits how we, what we can do. I mean, that was Babel, right? Mm. Dasal is recognizing that that's a lie. Uh, there is a very real limit. And uh, this was, let me close with this because I thought this was fascinating. She says, this is much later in the book, she says, but the cultural world in which man lives must include common certitudes. Uh, let me just comment the, on that. The, the Great Reset is really denying those common certitudes. It's saying we have to reimagine everything. The common certitudes that you knew about what was normal, about what constituted normal relationships, normal social relationships, normal economic relationships, forget about it. But she says, no, they, the, 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 it must include common certitudes because they are in fact dangerous, these certitudes, every world continues uh, 
every world contains within it the permanent risk of fanaticism and oppression. This risk cannot be eradicated without abolishing the cultural world itself. So this reset is all about, you heard in those quotes, the abolition of risk. You have to provide a nanny state that will give you cradle-to-grave security and eliminate risk. She says, but you cannot eliminate risk without abolishing the cultural world. Mm. She, go, she goes on. This would leave a world in which man is no more than a biological being waiting to die. A biological being waiting. Are we not being treated like that mm -hmm. right now? Mm -hmm. You know, let's just suspend the world, suspend life, because we because effectively we're biological beings waiting to die. What is a person, she says, if if nothing is more important than his ability to breathe? Life, the condition of existence, becomes the sole end. And in so becoming, it withers away. For if life is the condition of lived existence, existence within a meaningful world is what characterizes a human life. Man is this animal that undertakes the adventure of meaning, an adventure that constitutes a risk. He walks on the edge of a precipice by daring to accept the risk of error and conflict between certitudes. In other words, cultural life, the risk of error, the risk of conflict between different worldviews. If he gives up out of fear of the dangers that await him, he empties himself of an invisible substance. He narrows and shrivels up. He thereby strips himself of his self rejecting the dignity that is properly his own, the dignity that is his as a bearer of meaning. And that is what fundamentally is at stake, mm. um, that we are bearers of m meaning because of the nature of that we occupy God's creation and we cannot be reduced to breathing biological organisms. And, we must, that, and, that, and so we must, all we must do is eliminate risk to our breath. That is the destruction of culture. It's the destruction of life, mm. of human life. And Ryan, just before you close, with uh, the Great Reset and this perennial heresy of utopianism uh, in our minds, a great psalm for us and our listeners is Psalm 9, yep. verses 9 and 10. Arise, O Lord, let not men prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are only men. Amen. Fantastic thought to end on there. Thanks, Nathan. Men, appreciate you being here. Hope you're having a great uh, holiday season, Christmas season. From all of us at the Ezra Institute, this has been Worldview Wednesday, reminding you that from him, to him, and through him are all things. Have a blessed Christmas season, and we'll see you in the new year. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time